But if you would take your Bible and look to Ruth, and we're going to be in the final chapter uh, this evening. And I told um, Joy today, I was texting her, letting her know a couple things. I said, I'm trying to decide if this chapter is one sermon or two sermons. And uh, we're going to try to do it in one. I had, I don't know, maybe a dozen pages of notes front and back, and I brought three of them with me tonight. So uh, we'll just leave it at that, hopefully. Uh, we can narrow it down to what we need. There is a lot here in this book and has been the last few weeks as we've been studying. And so uh, we were going to try to put a, a bow on it here as we come to uh, the end of this book. And uh, next week we have doing trying to do that because I don't want too big of a gap between the uh, final chapter and kind of a final conclusion. Um, next week we have the Christmas cantata and uh, we'll have a uh, a short challenge at the end of that in a gospel presentation, uh, but they will be giving the message for the most part uh, next week. And then the week after that, we have our carols and candlelight service. And so hopefully you're planning on being here. That's the 20 evening of the 22nd. And uh, it'll be much like our candlelight services that we've had in the past and having a number of people help in different ways. And there will be some different scripture reading uh, we will sing songs together, we will listen to some carols and Christmas songs, and uh, hopefully enter into that Christmas week uh, with the right spirit as we uh, meet together on that particular week. And so, with those two things in mind, I'm going to try to finish up uh, the book of Ruth this evening, uh, starting in chapter number uh, 4. Uh, we're, what we're going to do is a little different than some of the other nights. Um, sometimes I will try to talk a little bit about things as we walk through a passage. Um, sometimes I like to just read the passage because that's the weight of the sermon anyway. That is the perfect spoken word, and so I don't want to interrupt it too much. Um, but with this particular passage tonight, there are several things that I think we can point out will help our minds as we go from verse to verse uh, to connect uh, to some of the larger picture, as we mentioned this morning. So we're going to read through uh, Ruth chapter 4, and as we do, I'm kind of going to stop, discuss a few things as we go uh, to help our understanding of it, and then we're going to kind of bring it all to a conclusion after we point some of those things out and really kind of summarize what is the point of the book of Ruth and what are the main lessons that we can learn from uh, not just her life, but from the lives also uh, that we learn about in this particular book. And so as we come to the end of this uh, series on it, let's ask the Lord to bless uh, it as we finish it up and as we walk through that passage together this evening. Lord, guide us, give us grace and mercy. I thank you for what we've learned so far. I thank you that you know, like when Naomi had circumstances that popped up in her life, unexpected crisis, a terrible crisis that came in her life, we are thankful that you know and that you are guiding in spite of those things. And then we are thankful that uh, even when our hearts can be bitter uh, in a way almost unintentionally, but still against you and how you have handled our lives, I thank you that even then, as you did with Naomi in chapter 1, you brought her to the perfect place at the perfect time uh, as her guide in spite of her attitude, in spite of her uh, sorrow and in spite of her fear. And then we're thankful that like you gave her hope and Ruth hope, you give us hope. And that when we respond rightly, as we learned last week, when we respond rightly to that hope, 
uh, that there is joy and that there is service and that there is patience and that there is righteousness and integrity because we can trust you. And so uh, we pray that as we come to the end of this book tonight, that you will help us to see the lessons that you have for us, but also that we would just simply see you and see how you guided these people's lives and how you work in our lives. And we pray that you would do so for your glory and in your name, by your strength, in your precious name. Amen. Look, if you would, in verse number one. It says in verse number one, Then went Boaz to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto him, whom he said, Ho, such an one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So Boaz, when it says this kinsman redeemer of which the kinsman of which he spoke, remember we left off last week, the end of chapter three, Ruth and Boaz, their budding romance is starting to come to a heightened proportion and they're excited and Ruth proposes to Boaz basically and uh, Boaz says, yes, I would love to do that, but there's a problem. And by law, he explains that there is one that is closer related to Naomi's family than he was. And by uh, Jewish law, it said that if there was a, a, a brother that was what we would consider a bachelor of a man that died, then he could marry the wife basically to help take on the responsibility to keep her from uh, poverty and uh, being destitute. That's how God provided for his people there. Though we may not understand that. Some of you are thinking of your brother-in-law this evening, and you're thinking, no way. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's, that's the way it could work. And if there wasn't a brother available, then it went to uh, kind of uncles and second cousins and all these different connections. And so there was evidently a kinsman closer than Boaz, Boaz being a man of integrity, though he at this point seems to be fully embracing the idea of marrying Ruth, not just out of necessity, but out of a desire of his heart. He says, there is one that is closer than I. Now, that would take a lot of self-control, not to just say, you know, we're just going to get married, forget, you know, the law and all these different things. But he says, I want to be upright in how we handle this. We're going to trust God in how we handle this. And so he speaks to Ruth and says, I'm going to talk to this other kinsman. And I'm going to find out, and one way or the other, this situation is going to be taken care of. And Boaz has been providing for Ruth and Naomi. He has been doing all the things that he needed to do. He truly cared for Naomi and for Ruth and for his family. He was a man of integrity, of upright standing. And so he goes to the gate. That is where the men would collect at certain times of day, especially the older men and uh, the men that may have servants that were uh, doing, and so they were kind of foreman. They would set the day in order, and then they would go discuss things around lunch or whatever time it may be, and they would go to the gate. They would meet, and they would talk, and so evidently this other kinsman is probably, he's probably wealthy, or at least he's well off enough to be there. Uh, he's probably an older man, much like Boaz, uh, because he's also going to be at this gate, and so Boaz goes and prepares, and I, I kind of want you to sense a little bit of the tone of which Boaz speaks. Remember, Boaz knew exactly who Ruth was when he's introduced to her in uh, chapter <coughs> 2 and then into chapter 3. He knows who Naomi is. He expresses immediate concern and care for them. He provides for them. And whether or not he and Ruth were going to work out, chapter 2 mentions nothing of romance. It was just his care and his desire to help Naomi and Ruth and to carry out this responsibility. He is a man of charity and of love. 
And so you can sense a little bit of something going on in Boaz toward this other kinsman. Because evidently this other kinsman has been nowhere on the scene so far. Naomi comes back and he, in a way, from what detail we have, shirks his responsibility as a kinsman. He doesn't offer to take care of Naomi. He doesn't offer to take care of Ruth. Uh, he doesn't offer to provide for the land. There's a way he could purchase the land and work this into the family. And there's a number, and you don't see anything about him. And the way that what Boaz says there, we don't really have an exact word for this. Um, I would say maybe uh, buddy or dude, but not in like a friendly sense. When he says, unto whom he said, ho, such and one. Literally there, it's, you could say it's such, a, such and such. It's like two versions of the same word. He's like, hey, buddy, so and so. He doesn't even call his name. He says, hey, such and such. And then notice he says, have a seat here. There's something we need to discuss. And then look at how he handles it in verse 2. He doesn't, it's not necessarily an immediate cordial discussion. Have you ever had somebody say, hey, have, let's have a discussion. And then you say, okay, let's have a discussion. And then they call other people into that discussion. Then you know it's not a good thing. Because look at verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit ye down here. And they sat down. At this point, the kinsman has to know something's going on. And then look at verse 3. Look at how he presents this. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. Now, evidently, Naomi still, had, there was still land in Elimelech's family. They hadn't sold it off. No one had stolen it. And for this 10 years, or, or really longer, most likely, that they had been in Moab, it's still within his family's name. But again, Naomi has no real right to it, and she has no way to work it or provide for it. She has nothing to bring to it to start it up. And so she's going to lose this one way or the other, whether someone takes it, to, to pay for debt or whether she sells it to try to start up her life again. And so he says, Naomi is selling a parcel of land. And notice what he says in verse 4. He says, and I thought to advertise thee. That word literally means to uncover thee. I felt like we needed to open this up and let everybody know you are the kinsman. He's really putting him on the spot. I'm uncovering you and making you, forcing you to make a decision. There's a lot of ways this kinsman could have been deal dealing with this. He could have said, I could just wait and step in and get it at a cheaper price. I could wait and step in and claim it as family. Whatever he did, he says, I make, I'm making you make a decision now. And look at verse 4, saying, Buy it for, thy, uh, for the inhabitants and before the elders of my people, saying, Keep it in the family. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And now at the end of verse 4, the kinsman says... I will redeem it. And all of the inner movie goer and book reader in us says, No, no, this has been a perfect story to this point. Do not let him redeem it. Why are you even asking him, Boaz? That's what our hearts kind of do. And he says, I'll take it. And it's sort of the this crushing end to this, what we would think, Bible fairy tale story in a way, in this blooming romance. And we're thinking, what in the world is going on? And there's so much that we put ourselves into this story. And this book can be taken very figuratively in a way and as an allegory. Personally, I've been careful 
not to really do that these last few weeks because the truth is it's a true story written about true people for real lessons. And we could plug ourselves in there and represent ourselves as Ruth being redeemed by this man, this Redeemer and Savior that happens to come from Bethlehem, much like our Redeemer and Savior. And we were foreigners and he was perfect and whole in, in, in the sense in this book. And he's a man of integrity and he steps in and saves the day. And we can place ourselves into it. And there's nothing ill or evil in that. But there is much to be learned just from the face value of what is going on here and how God is working in these people's lives. And so this man says, I will redeem it. And then notice if you would in verse number five, then said Boaz, and can you imagine, I don't think Ruth was there. Can you imagine if she had been? What are you doing? You started with the land. You led with the property. Why would you do that? And then look at verse number five. Then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi? Then he, then he kind of comes in with this. He says, you must also. Thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So he reminds him of this law and says, if you buy this property as a kinsman, you also take Ruth and commit yourself to her as a husband to provide. And if you do have children, he will, their firstborn will bear the name of Ruth and her first husband. And now the kinsman changes his mind. Look at verse 6. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, I'll give the man a little bit of credit. He may have been married. Uh, I don't know that Boaz would have presented this to him if he was. Uh, he may have had other reasons that he could not do this. But you sense a little bit of feeling of what Ruth could have experienced with a non-merciful redeemer. Think about the way that he kind of talks about all this. He said, yeah, sure, I'll take the land. In fact, I want you to notice something. Most, most Bibles are written this way. Uh, but notice, if you would, in verse number 6, it says, And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Do you notice the difference in font with the word it? Anybody see that? Okay, see how it's in italics? That means it, in the original, it is not there. It, we put it there for clarity because it wouldn't make sense in our English language if it says, I cannot redeem for myself. So they add it for some clarity. But in other words, he doesn't even say her name. He doesn't even refer to her as an item or, an, or a human or a woman or anything. He just says, Ugh, I can't do that. I won't redeem. No, no. And notice he says, to, lest I mar my own inheritance, that would mar mangle and destroy my own inheritance. So he's looking at Ruth. Well, how would, he, how would Ruth destroy his inheritance? A couple ways. One, she's a foreigner, and so he doesn't want anything to do with the, the, the people of Moab being in his family, in his line. Two, how long had she been married? Ten years. And in that day, there was no family planning in that sense. She was barren. She could not have children, evidently, at least for this first 10 years. Something was wrong to the place that they had not had children. And so she's barren. And so when he looks at Ruth, he says, no, she's foreign. She can't provide a child. There's, I don't want that. And that's kind of the attitude that Ruth realized or could have realized that that's how a non-merciful redeemer could have looked at Ruth in her life. 
sidestep for a moment. Outside of Christ, there is nothing that you can put your faith and commit yourself to that will treat you like Christ does, like Boaz treated Ruth. The world, sin, your nature, your flesh treats you just like this kinsman does. Even our own heart and our own minds, it's all sometimes for self. It's all self-involved. What can I get? What physical things can I gain? What can I have? What is this for me? And, and just the, the selfishness. But we see the joy and the mercy and the grace of Boaz and how he speaks to her. And the contrast is incredible. Now look at verse number Six again, he says, for I can't, at the end of it, it says, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning, uh, concerning changing. For to conform all, confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony uh, in Israel. And so it's, that's a little parenthesis. He says, and by the way, back in this time in Israel, when there was a sale, when there was something agreed upon, when there was a handshaking, a deal of sorts, a man would take off his shoe and he would kind of hand it to the others. We have a deal. That's weird. I would not want to do that today, but that is the way that they do it. But there's also some other indications there. Look at verse number eight. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. Now notice it says, so he drew off his shoe. And if you say, well, which one? Well, the Bible's not perfectly clear. But if you look at the subject of verse 8, therefore the kinsman said, and then at the end of the same verse it says, so he drew off his shoe. I think you're safe to say the kinsman took off his own shoe. Why is that a big deal? I want you to flip for just a moment. Don't get lost in the details here. We're going to come back to the big view in a moment. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 25 for a moment. Why is that significant? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is where the law of this kinsman redeemer came from. And uh, this was passed on, but given to the people at Moses' time. And so it's something that had been established for a number of years. It's something that everyone knew. And as strange as we may think some of the traditions of this were, that's what they were. And so the picture of them there, we're not reading into it. We're just looking to what was the case in their time. Look at verse number 6. For time's sake, we'll skip verse 1 through 5. We're talking about... Uh, different things with this. And it says in verse 5, If a brethren uh, dwell together, one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife. So saying that what we've discussed the last few weeks. And look at verse number 6. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, which is what the case that we have in Ruth, says, Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to, to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my brother's uh, husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him, speak unto him. He, and if he stand to it, if he says, Yeah, I, I do not, I will not take my brother's wife. I will not protect that family. I will not buy and redeem those things, then what will happen? Look at verse number 9. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. Now, 
as strange as we think that is, you can go back to Ruth 4, as strange as we think that tradition is, they considered this a shame. It is a shame to not bear the family name. It is a shame to not provide for uh, these ones. They were, had been living in exile. They knew what it was like to be lost and without hope. And they said, if that happens to your family, you redeem them. It was not a common thing, if you read the history of it. It was not a common thing to deny this. And so they said, if it does, then the wife that has been left alone, she can take his shoe off saying, fine, it's a deal. Same thing. The shoe kind of confirmed that lawful deal. She will rip it off or take it off his feet and spit in his face, and it's a way of shame. And so it's not really reading into it to say that not only did this Redeemer say, I'm giving you this as a deal, he knew, he would have known this law, he would have known that that was the case, that Ruth or Naomi, either one could have gone to him, taken his shoe off and spit in his face in shame. And he willingly says, in fact, I will, I'm not going to take it off, don't worry, I, I will, takes it off, I, I'll take the shame. It's not worth it, is what he says. And so that's how he treats Ruth. That's how he treats this situation. Yeah, it's a lot of land, but I don't want that. And so we can consider in this point of the story our own lives, that when we are marred by sin, and when we have been born into this world of sin, that there is nothing that can redeem us. There is nothing that can save us. Righteousness and our own righteous works, when we come to the table trying to perform our own righteous works in a figurative sense, says, no, can't do it. We come to riches and we say, well, we want to have riches and satisfaction and wealth. And we come to that point in our life and we try to satisfy ourselves. And even those feelings say, no, we can't do it. You find any relationship that you have with any person in this world and try to say, this is going to fulfill me. This is going to redeem me. This is going to give me purpose. And it says, no, I won't do it. We only find redemption and merciful forgiveness of sins through our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 9. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, ye are witnesses this day. You can hear the excitement in his voice. Have you ever done a sale online or uh, in person, you're going to sell a car, uh, and you didn't know it was a lemon, but you may have had your inclinations along the way, and you say, well, I'll take this, and you have this idea of this price in your mind, and someone says, well, I'll, you're thinking, I'll take 4000 for it, so I say, I'll give you 4500 you're like, sold, yes, yes, I uh, sold, done, the deal is over, and that's kind of the way that it seems like he jumps right on top of this, he says, okay, okay, we're not even going to discuss this anymore, Take it. It is done. He says, I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's, all that was Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, now he says this is the important part, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased, and don't get that wrong there in the wrong spirit, you just simply mean to redeem. I am taking her to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren. And from the gate of his place, ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the, and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come to, uh, into thine house like Rachel and like Leah. Now stop there for a moment. These Israelites just said of Ruth, the Moabitess, the enemy, who had just had, they had, just had a battle in, in a way in that point in history. Some of them had just been held captive in Moab, they say, may she be like 
Rachel and Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in uh, Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. They even now are blessing Ruth. They accept her gloriously and say, we want her to thrive and succeed. We rejoice in this way. And it is, do not be told, too allegorical. It is a beautiful picture of how heaven and how other Christians should rejoice at the acceptance of another Christian. When one comes to Christ and when one is redeemed, they say, oh, glory to this. And look at verse 12. Let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar uh, bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord, <coughs> which the Lord shall give thee of this, womb, of this woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And that is the end of a great story. Is that, I told somebody this week when I was discussing it. It is way better than a Hallmark movie. It's a similar plot line because there's a man that dies and then the wife gets a new man at the end. So that part's similar. But it is way better than most movies that you could think of. It is far better than any story that you could write. And you have this, it just walks from one to the other. But what, is, what are the lesson? what is the big lesson of the book of Ruth? I think you could simplify it down to a number of different things to try to put it into a main lessoner statement. The life of the godly is not a straight line to Christ's glory, to God's glory, but they do get there. God doesn't abandon, God doesn't leave them alone, and though our life may not be a straight line to what God has promised in the end, it is a line that gets there. One commentator said, or one writer said, it's not a highway through Nebraska, it's a back road in Tennessee. It may be a little different path than you expected, but you're still headed to the same place. And God, as we studied this morning, does not forget, but He does remember those whom He has redeemed, and He does work in their lives for good. The story of Ruth is a series, really, of setbacks. You have Naomi who leaves her land because of a famine, and then as she's away, her husband dies, and then after he dies, her her sons marry, and they're there, and then they die. And then she goes to come back, and she's saying, oh, this is all terrible. My life is awful. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And then Naomi says, go out, and Ruth goes to find crops, and she does, and she finds Boaz. But initially, there's not, a, not an immediate connection. He doesn't propose. He doesn't say, I'm going to go redeem you. But then it, 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 there's this budding, blooming relationship between the two of them. He says, I will redeem you, but... There's another kinsman, and there's another setback. And you got to think that Ruth is kind of catching on here to how Naomi feels. Will this ever end? It's sorrow after sorrow and trouble and complication after complication. And it's interestingly enough that one of the setbacks in their life was because of Boaz's righteousness. You could say that Elimelech died away and left his family alone in Moab because of his sin to not follow the promise of God. You could say that Naomi's attitude and her bitterness was her, in her own sin because of her attitude and her heart toward God. But then you get to this setting and says, yes, Boaz and Ruth are going to marry, but because Boaz is truthful, a man of integrity, and he is righteous, there's another setback. And there are moments in life when you follow God the way that He intends, it will create another setback. But Boaz, trusting the way of God, you find this kind of glorious thing. In fact, you see another small setback as we read. The kinsman says, I will purchase that. And you're thinking, no, 
But in the end, God proves faithful. And the book of Ruth is about setbacks, but it's about God's faithfulness through those setbacks. I want you to look, (coughs) excuse me, if we would, in verse 14 as we finish out the book. The story kind of takes a screeching halt. You've seen those movies where, or, or, or a book, you've started a book, or you've read an article that starts with kind of one character, and it goes through this whole backlog thing. You kind of forget about them for a little while, and then it like kind of freezes at the climactic moment, and then it goes back to the person that you started with at the very beginning. That's kind of the way that the book of Ruth works, because you have all this stuff about Boaz and Ruth, and now they have a child, and look at verse 14. And the woman said unto Naomi, women, the women that were there, uh, those that surrounded her in Bethlehem, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman. Now who is he redeeming? Ruth or Naomi? Well, he's directly Ruth. But in a way, he is saving and he's redeeming Naomi. It says that his name may be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee, unto Naomi, a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. He says, remember when Naomi came in, dusty and barren, alone, empty, bitter, and now she is restored. She is nourished. And notice some phrasing here. It says, for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. That's an interesting note to the Jewish mind, the perfect family was full of seven sons. That was sort of the number of perfection and the number of times your line could be carried on. And look at verse 16. Uh, or the, um, yeah, look at verse 16. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. That word nurse means, uh, means uh, faithful and sure. It means uh, fulfilling or to uh, come in behind and nourish. So she became a help to this young baby boy. And it's a great picture of what God can do in the life of someone that may be bitter and empty, but then turns their heart to him and they become the help to others. And look at verse 17. And the women, uh, her neighbors, gave it a name saying, there is born, there is a son born to who? Naomi. Now, did we miss something here? (laughs) Is there some, what happened? Okay, where, where do we go off, and where, how is Naomi having a son? Was well, it Naomi's physical son? No. Then why would the writer make an emphasis here that this is a son of Naomi? Because Naomi's the one in chapter 1 that said, God has taken me away full and brought me back empty. And now they sing of her, God has given to her again. He has given her this son, and they called his name Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And I want us to think about these Three things very quickly tonight. I just want us to close our study of the book of Ruth with with three real thoughts geared towards Naomi, because that's who we started with and that's who we ended with. So in that, thinking about Naomi, what does this have to do? How does this have to do with me? Well, as you look at her life, you see these gracious signposts. If we're going to compare our lives to a road, Sometimes the road is not straight. Sometimes it is curvy. There are hills. Sometimes there is trouble. And so we're going to compare it to a road. Let's call these signposts of grace. You ever been driving and somebody in the car needs to use the restroom? 
And you say, well, you don't, that's not when you want to pass the sign that says next rest area, 154 miles. Okay, that's not, not when you want to. It's great when it says next rest area, two miles away. Or you say, along the way, you say, well, they're this far away. You've been riding with uh, children, and they say, when are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to be there? And you just say, well, it's a few more miles. Or you're coming down 64 west, and it's just trees uh, at one point between Charlottesville and here. And it's, it feels like the signposts go backwards on your way there. There's more miles somehow added on that particular stretch of that trip. That's the way that it feels. But what are some signposts of grace along the way for Naomi as this story finishes? And if you want to jot them down, here they are. Number one is the gift of Ruth. Along the way in Naomi's life, God gave her the gift of Ruth. God had won Ruth's allegiance in Moab. She says, you are now my God. She claimed Naomi's God for herself. And God gave Ruth this amazing love that can only come out of relationship with your Creator or our relationship with Christ. And we saw that Ruth grew to love Naomi and Ruth grew to love her God. And in Naomi's setback after setback, one consistent signpost of grace that you see over and over and over is Ruth. Over and over, Naomi says, go back, go back to your gods. And Ruth says, I will not leave you. She says, I can't give you a son anymore. What do you expect? Your life is going to be miserable. And Ruth says, God do unto me evil if I leave you. And so Ruth says, I'll be faithful. I'll stay committed to you. Then they get there, Naomi in her discouragement, probably in a depression, in a sort of state of depression, just really thinks life is over and she's bitter about all these different things. And Ruth says, I'll go out and work. I'll go out and, and do some things to support us. And Ruth encourages her, not just with her faithfulness, but also with her actions toward them. Then Ruth is faithful to these different things. And remember at the end of chapter 2, Naomi gives Ruth some very specific instructions. And Ruth says, I will submit to that. I will be obedient. I will do what you need. And then Ruth carries those things out and she follows along and she doesn't waver and go after things for her own self but seeks to provide. And sometimes God brings people into our lives, doesn't he? That are much like Ruth. That come along the way and though life may seem bitter, life may seem rough, when God brings someone that is faithful and when God brings someone that is helpful and when God brings someone that is true and will work and will do things that sometimes we need, don't, like Naomi did at first, turn them away. Don't abuse that person in your relationship with them, but allow God to work in that person in you. And if you want to flip it the other way, we should be a Ruth too. There may be somebody in life, there are not many more people in this world that are unbearable than a bitter person. And you, you know, we know that. But there's not a, a more, there's not a person that needs to see the grace of God more than a bitter person either. We may need to be a Ruth to someone by our faithfulness, by our helpfulness, and by our allegiance to them. It may be someone within this church. It may be a family member. It may be a spouse. That we need to come alongside and be a signpost of grace like Ruth was. The second signpost of grace was the preservation of Boaz. How did Boaz make it that long, right? <laughs> Without being married. How was Boaz not taken? And uh, all the women of Bethlehem, when they saw Ruth, said, Amen. You know, they're like, well, finally, somebody won this man over. But it wasn't as much his pickiness, it wasn't as much coincidence as it was God's providence in her life. 
sometimes God raises up, and there may be something that is unexplainable any other way. A rich man in Bethlehem with a lot of grain after a famine that is a bachelor and that is full of integrity and a man of value, and he is not a dirty man, he is not a scuzzy man, but he is committed and he is loving and he is not taken. <laughs> that is not explainable at this point. So sometimes God brings things into our lives that are unexplainable any other way. And we need to look at those as these signs of grace and just say, thank you. Because in every loss that we endure, God is already plotting for our good. And then the final thing is the gift of Ruth's child. You have the gift of Ruth, if you want to say it this way, the gift of Boaz, and then the gift of this child. You say, well, how is it a gift? Remember, she said she 10 years married in that day with no children. It's not a miracle. They would have considered it a curse. And so for all that time, if you're going to consider that a curse, then you have to consider the fact that she had a child, a miracle. And it's even more proven by the way that the Bible phrases it. If you would, look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, notice this, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. There's 45 times in the, New, in the Old Testament that the Bible uses the word conceived or conception. Literally every single one says, and she conceived, and Leah conceived, and they conceived, and the woman conceived. This is the only out of 45 times where it says, the Lord gave her conception. God worked a miracle in Ruth's life, and he worked a miracle in Naomi's life. And though this may seem like a trivial thing, a small little detail of life, it was God's working. And it should help us as we look at this story to see that even in the small, trivial things of life, God is working. There's a disease in our society, in our culture, of triviality. We live trivial lives, going from one trivial thing to the next, hoping that something big comes along the way. But the truth is, every day, if you're a child and a believer of God, every day is full of hope. Every day is full of grace. Every day is full of God's miracle. And the small details of life, if you're a believer of God and His sovereign grace and His providence, the small details of life drive us to a bigger purpose. So where we're delayed from something, when someone with hardship is placed in our path, when we go about our daily work and are bored out of our minds, when we can't wait till the next vacation, and we can't next, wait till the next milestone of life, and we can't wait till retirement. We can't wait till these things. And the mundane, ordinary parts of life seem to just be annoying. Ruth gathering grain. Ruth being on the threshing floor. Boaz going out and checking his fields. Boaz speaking to his servants. Ruth and Boaz being married, but a child being born from it. The daily little things of life God uses for good. And so it should change how we treat them. It should change how we live them. It should change how we think about them. I'll finish you with this. There's a man named <clears throat> from early 1900s named John Jowett when he was writing about this particular, uh, this particular passage, this particular book of Ruth. He says, Sometimes when you look at the horizon rather than an enclosed field or a local landscape, 
He has a marvelous way of connecting every subject to eternity past with eternity to come. I'm talking about the author of Ruth. It is as though you are looking at a bit of carved wood in a Swiss village window. And then you look up and you lift your eyes and you see the, for the forest from where that wood came. You look higher still and you see the mountains capped with snow that provide the nourishment for the trees to grow. And then you look further past the horizon and you see the sun that provided each of those things. It says the book of Ruth is like that. You see some of the detail and you look a little further. You see, whoa, that's a big picture. You look a little further, but it all comes back to God is working. In our lives, though we get bored sometimes with the mundane details, we get upset with the tragic incidents, and we get frustrated with the unexpected crisis when we look up from the small detail, which we should appreciate too, we'll see further and further and further. And eventually you get to the fact that God is working. 